First men try with magic charms to fertilize the earth, to keep their flocks and herds from harm, and bring new young to birth. Then to capricious gods they turn to save from fire or flood, their smoking sacrifices burn on altars red with blood. Now bold philosopher and sage, a subtle plan decree, and prove by thought or sacred page what nature ought to be. But nature smiles, a sphinx-like smile, watching their little day. She waits in patience for a while, their plans dissolve away. Then come those humbler men of heart with no completed scheme, content to play a modest part to test, observe, and dream. Till out of chaos come in sight clear fragments of a whole, man, learning nature's way aright, obeying can control. And nature smiles, still unconfessed, the secret thought she thinks, inscrutable she guards unguessed, the riddle of the Sphinx. Welcome to Quirks of Creation. And welcome to another episode of Quirks of Creation. I'm your host, Jess Holmes, and joining me, as always, is Elise. Hello. Hello, everybody. I'm trying to unmute Spencer. I'm sorry. I've got him muted. (laughs) Oh, no. You guys didn't come here to listen to Spencer, did you? (laughs) Because no, he's not here. He's trapped in a box, a secret silent box. He's miming, doing things with his hands. You know, it's just... That's right. It's a game. He's, he's good at it. Tonight. Okay, so the whole... Wait, goal I'm is- drunk with power. I've unmuted myself. No! I didn't even need to wait to be <laughs> unmuted. Who invited him here? <laughs> I just show up to these things myself, so that's... <laughs> Really I was out. looking forward to doing a whole like fishbowl episode of Quirks of Creation <laughs> where you just had me like pounding on the inside right. of the computer to get out. It's like we brought him here to talk about ancient science and history and like all these things, but no, he just gets to bang on the screen and that's it. Yeah, exclusively via charades. Like that was the part, right. the rider in the contract that you didn't tell me about. That's yeah. right. Uh, <laughs> amazing. We sent that later. Don't, don't you know ASL, right? That's what you're here to do, right? You right, know all the languages. Right. <laughs> no, this is like somebody did ask me once, like, is ASL one of your languages? It is not. Um, I, I will say the, that I have just been vibing with the like intro music or the hold music or whatever you call that. So <laughs> yes. I would have happily kind of, if you could have, could have like kept playing that, I would have just sort of chilled in the background while you guys talked about erudite stuff, you know? <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. I'm always off, of course, off screen, just like, ah, yeah, it doesn't matter. Don't ever really... see behind the scenes us having our dance party while we're waiting for you guys to show up, but it's a thing. It sure does slap, no question. I mean, both the intro music and the hold music, I think, are A+. Yay, thank you. <laughs> um, that was actually my brother-in-law. He did a good job, I think. Good yeah, job, bro. Absolutely. Yay, family. <laughs> Pretty solid. So for those of you who are here and listening and don't know who Spencer is. Spencer, who are you? <laughs> Good, what a fab, fabulous question. Um, I wish I knew how to answer. No, I, so 
I am a writer, an editor, a podcaster. I work at the Claremont Institute, which is a conservative think tank, and I have a podcast called Young Heretics, which is the classical education you didn't know you were missing. I think of my mission in life as offering people the richness and the good stuff of the Western canon without any of the political nonsense that tends to get in the way. So that's my brief. My background is in classics, as I'm sure we'll talk about ancient literature, especially Greek and some of the stuff I'm sure we'll touch on. But it's been a whirlwind journey since grad school into a whole bunch of other subjects, including uh, science and, and all that good stuff. So that's, that's me. so awesome. I have always loved Young Heretics. I started listening while I was still working my government job. And I was like, yeah. oh, finally, someone who will actually talk about the things I want to know about without an <laughs> Gross political uh, propaganda. This is amazing. Yes. yes. Yeah. I should. I should note that that is the heresy implied in the title. It's not. I, I do not uh, do my podcast just to spread like the Marcionite heresy or some other like weird unorthodox form of Christianity. But it's the heresy against like woke dogma or just political dogma generally. I want to give people the good stuff. That's what I'm there for. And you know, one. I was thinking before we logged on, like one of the best things anybody ever said to me in grad school was that classics, which is my discipline, but I think it applies more generally to all kind of study and curiosity. It's like a climbing wall. So if you get your hooks in like one particular part of the wall, let's say you start out as I did studying ancient Greek music theory, seems super random and obscure, but it turns out that ancient Greek music theory is adjacent to ancient Greek semantics and to the study of language and how language works. And then from there, if you really kind of get dug into that, then you can move maybe over to philosophy more generally. And there's really like nothing that isn't connected in the life of the mind or in the world. And that's how I've ended up, I feel like, in some of these weirder corners where, technically speaking, I have no business being like talking <laughs> with, you know, actual science teachers about science and, and all of that stuff. I love that, though, because one of the goals of this show is to bring science and history back to its roots in philosophy and in things that matter because science just like speaking from my perspective has hardcore lost its way mm. this very materialistic approach to science while it does come about as a result of the more recent scientific revolution has been very damaging to society as a whole so i'm really excited about to talk about those things but we have our first rumble rant Yay. so i am obligated to ask abby <laughs> libby asks what is your deep an abiding love for otters. Love. <laughs> <laughs> My otter passion. Your passion for otter otters. Passion. <laughs> it has been said, I forget by whom, that lurking somewhere beneath every deep hatred and rivalry and antipathy, there is actually admiration and love. And so maybe Abby is on to something, but there is a villain origin story for me in my anti crusade, <laughs> and that is when my book, How to Save the West, came out. It was I was really happy with how it was doing and I was watching it climb the Amazon charts and I broke into the double digits of like all books on Amazon, which was way better than I thought I was going to do. And I was super stoked about it. And I got up to, I think, number 86. And so I'm looking on the charts. I'm like, okay, 86 out of all the books. That's great. Like, there's a lot of books on Amazon. What's number 85? And it turns out it's this like inane children's book about awesome. <laughs> called I think I otterly love you or something with these adorable <laughs> otters painted on the cover and it does just so happen that in in point of fact otters 
actually are very vicious and cruel beasts that do all sorts of terrible things like yes. hold their young hostage for various uh, modes of gain and are constantly attacking people and so now on online i have this like anti-otter crusade because i just really feel that we all need to wake up sheeple to <laughs> at otters pose not only to my bottom line in selling books but just to civilization and all that is good and decent it's really for humanity you're doing it for everybody appreciate that Jess I like and to think I, of it as effective altruism, yes. There you go. Yes, mm. absolutely. Jess and I will sit and talk often about how mm. much we hate birds. And I feel like we really need yes. to get on onto <laughs> this. Uh, like, you guys all think that chickens in particular are so great. They're not. Mm. They're not. Little evil the, 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 monsters. Wow, fauna generally. Yeah. Okay. Wait, yeah. are you guys on the birds aren't real train? or do you No, birds are evil. <clears throat> they're real. They're, they're just evil. Yeah. Well, let's like Jay and Abby have that. Right. Yes. Much like demons. They're like, yes. it's not that they don't exist, it's that they do exist, and that's why you should yes. hate yes. them. Yes, that's and what that's we're trying right. to say about birds. They exist yes. and they are, in fact, demons. Uh-huh. You got it. Yes. Have you looked in so, their eyes? I mean, that's all I got to say. The voice there <laughs> back. Have you seen the PETA thing, or did you see the PETA thing on Thanksgiving, where it was like a bunch oh. of turkeys <laughs> eating a baked human, and everybody was like, see? they wouldn't do this to us? And then the whole internet but was like, would. yes, they absolutely they would. They absolutely would. About? Yeah, yeah. But they would. So. <laughs> they totally would. Just be quiet, PETA. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty huge. PETA getting it big wrong. Right. Absolutely <laughs> ridiculous. Yes. Uh, well, now that we've gone off on that tangent, which mm. I'm sure is one of many, which I'm excited for. But <laughs> can't wait. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to leave it to Jess to get us back on track because she's. Okay. Yeah. So if you guys. Save us, Jess. Save us. Yeah. Please. Save us. <laughs> Avis. Okay, if you guys didn't recognize uh, the poem I recited at the top of the show, that comes from Sir William Cecil Dampier, who, aside from being the dude who discovered how to extract lactose from whey, was a prim- prominent scientific historian in the late 1800s. And he wrote this book called The History of Science and Its Relation with Philosophy and Religion, which is really fascinating. I'm still working my way through it because it's like 500 pages long. Um <laughs> But it, it it is a fun read. And it's so interesting the way he paints the picture because he starts with the most ancient of sciences and how it is so deeply rooted in mysticism because they haven't yet developed the scientific method. So we're talking as early as ancient Egypt um, when they're practicing like mummification, things like that, and all the way down to basically his time right before we get to quantum mechanics. So that is a fun read. And I thought it'd be fun to talk today to kind of like walk through that and see if there is any lingering mysticism in modern day science that we can pull from ancient times as well. Yeah. Oh, boy. I love this topic. And I loved that poem. I mean, this is so I guess this is maybe a little bit of a a scoop, but I can talk about it now because it is on Amazon. I have this new book that I just finished and uh you know, I haven't like fully announced it yet. So I guess you heard it here first on Quirks of Creation. But what that means is that like my whole last year or so has been about kind of digging into the deep history of science. And one reason why I thought this would be a fun thing to talk about is that one of the most interesting threads that you can kind of start to pull on when you study the ancient history of science is how closely tied together science and magic mm-hmm. are at least for most of human history. And it sounds like we're going to get into talking about whether they're still closely tied together or not, which I think is kind of the juiciest question. Yeah. But just to sort of set it up, you know, 
I was I was sent on this chase in part by a passage in C.S. Lewis's Abolition of Man, in which he makes this really interesting observation. He says, like, there's kind of a common narrative that in the Middle Ages, you had the darkness of pre-scientific thought and there was all this magic going on. People were doing witchcraft, practicing like woo-woo, doing what we would now think of as like crystal therapy and whatever. And then science happened and there was no more magic because everybody could do science. And he points out that actually, if you study the Middle Ages, there's not a lot of magic for the reason that we were just jokingly alluding to about birds, which is that in the Middle Ages, people really believe that if you mess around with magic, you're going to uncover certain forces that you don't want to be messing with. So they're not actually doing a lot of magic. In the scientific revolution, the lead up, you know, the 16th century, right, in the kind of flowering, the efflorescence of what would become the scientific method and all that stuff, there's a huge, what Lewis calls the high noon of magic, this enormous interest in like what kind of incantations, what kind of spells, what kind of prophecies can we access? I thought that's really, like, why? Why is that? And the further back you go, the more you start to realize that actually magic and science, which are both ancient endeavors, both of which have roots in the very first beginnings of human thought, they're born out of almost exactly the same impulse, which is sort of expressed in that poem. And it's to discern kind of lines and trends and rules that enable you to predict the future and therefore have an effect on them. I mean, this is kind of what the logic of cause and effect does, right? It says, well, if I release an object from a height, it's going to fall. And therefore, if I want the object not to fall or if I want the object to fall without breaking, I must do this or that. And if you think about the logic of all sorts of magical endeavors, like spell casting, entrail reading, astrology, they actually have exactly the same logic. It's just that it doesn't work, right? right? It's not actually an accurate cause. So you say like, okay, if the entrails look brown, then the war is going badly or whatever. That's the exact same thesis. And, it, and it, if you look, for example, at like the Chaldeans, who were the cutting edge Babylonian researchers, even before any of the Greeks kind of got involved with this stuff, they are doing both of these things all the time. They are both astrologers and astronomers. And people dismiss this because they think, well, these are backwards sort of, you know, kooks that don't really know anything. Except that, like, when you start to say that, you have to think, well, okay, but the Babylonians, the Chaldeans, right, what do they do? Well, they count in base 60. So that means that instead of going up to 10 and starting again, they go up to 60 and start again. And it's like, well, okay, so that's why there's 12 months in a year. That's why there's 360 degrees in the circle. That's why like all of these sort of major numbers in our mathematics are founded on a base 60 or multiples of 60. And you suddenly realize like, no, actually the, a lot of the foundations of our science are taking place at the same time as people are like trying to read the motions of Venus and trying to do astrology and all this stuff. And that like alignment, that closeness actually persists not just up until the scientific revolution, but like through it, like Kepler is doing astrology and astronomy at the same time. Newton is writing commentaries on uh, alchemical texts. And and this like closeness is very, very in- enduring. And I just thought like, wow, what, what an interesting thing to talk about. It is an enormously interesting thing to talk about. And I'm so excited to talk about it because this is the thing that gets me into science. So let, yeah. let's start at the beginning. I mean, we can't start at the very beginning because this would be a very long show talking <laughs> about like 
how the universe began and maybe that would be fun to do like a whole separate episode on uh, on the beginning of the universe but when i think about ancient magic or ancient science i typically think of alchemy and Mm -hmm. feel free to correct me if i'm wrong but my understanding is this stems from the egyptian deity chem uh, who was associated with fertility, the floodplains, the planting of seeds. And so since the annual flooding of the Nile brought with it all the silts and clay and the water brought life to its surroundings, he was thought to be the creator of human children, which he made out of a potter's wheel from clay and then placed in their mother's womb. So even at the beginning, you get this idea of creation deeply associated with the very beginnings of science. Mm, yeah, well, so it just so happens that I went to Egypt this year, That's and so cool. uh, yeah. which was amazing and so cool. And one of the things that I had this fa- fabulous tour guide, and he showed me this wall that contained an extremely detailed series of recipes for aromatherapy. And this is like way, way old. You know, this is yeah. pre, uh, and, and it's got this like, you know, minute sort of set of instructions that people think, I mean, who knows how how well they've they've accurately sort of represented this, but people think that they can even make these sort of poultices and, and perfumes using these instructions. They're that detailed. Wow. And w- what this tells you is, right, there is obviously a reverence for what the Greek word for this would be kemea, which means the kind of mixing and blending of elements. You First, you refine things down to like, well, this juice from this flower, and then you take other juices and you say, well, when I'm going to put them together, they create this effect. And some of those effects are like, well, this makes me calm down and sleep better. Some of them might be like aphrodisiac. And then some of them are going to be like, this is going to enable you to see visions of, of the deities or, or whatever. Right. Um, and what's really fascinating about the Egyptians in antiquity is that they are for the Greeks, what the Greeks are for us. So for, for us, the Greeks are like the oldest people ever deep in the source of the heart of the past. Mm -hmm. But the Greeks obviously are not that to themselves. They're, they're the present, but they think of the Egyptians as, as their antiquity. Like they're, they're so old that they have all of this ancient knowledge. And that, Kemea, that reduction of things to its elements and the recombination, which, you know, once you have the elements, then you can make clean assertions about, you know, this has this effect and this has that effect versus if things in the world already come pre-mingled together, then it's harder to discern, right? Maybe this egg is going to give you some properties, but you don't know what in the egg it is. And so you boil all that down, whatever. Um, This is how Greek philosophy begins. Um, Aristotle gives us a very comprehensive account of the origins of natural science, at least in Greece, which is where we get our word physics, right? So the origins of of natural science um, in Miletus, which is a place in Asia Minor, where people start to ask, what are the archai? What are the like rudiments of physical existence? Is it water? That's what Thales thought. Is it fire? That's what Heraclitus thought. Is it the four elements? That's what Empedocles thought. And so this is like, you know, kind of the the origins of rational thought essentially right. in in the West, and also it's the origin, as you indicate, of what will eventually become alchemy, which comes right out of the Greek word kemea. It's thought to maybe go through Arabic, become alchemia, and turn into 
alchemy, which is like attributed to this imaginary god Hermes Trismegistus, basically an Egyptian god kind of repurposed um, and persists on into the um, through past the Middle Ages and, and into the Renaissance and so forth. But right out of that same endeavor, boiling things down to their elements, seeking prime matter, seeking like these these like the most uh, basic rudiments of physical existence, you will eventually get atomic theory and chemistry, which also comes from the Greek word kemea, right? That chemistry right. just is alchemy that works. And that's kind of, that that pattern repeats itself in all sorts of other scientific disciplines too. Yeah. Um, that is just, that's so cool. My brain is just like, whoa, I love talking about these things. <laughs> um, but bonkers. you're right. And so, not only do we get this discovery of basic matter, but we get a desire to understand numbers better. So, of course, we get the Pythagoreans are mm. kind of like around this time. And like I know my students, whenever they hear Pythagoras, they're like, no, not the Pythagorean theorem. <laughs> yes. A, you plus must a squared plus B squared equals C squared. Right. Yeah. Yeah. We all yeah. Recall. Okay. <laughs> Send everybody into a massive trauma right now. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it could only be worse if we started singing X equals negative B plus or minus radical B squared minus 4AC all over 2A. This is I have to go now. So I'm, I'm just <laughs> she's like, I'm already done with you. I'm triggered. Guys. I got to go. Call. No. Yeah. <laughs> no. <laughs> but this desire to understand creation also got into this desire to understand numbers because the Pythagoreans were obsessed with numbers. They thought not only were numbers just like good for explaining physical phenomenon, which is primarily what we use it for, especially just like when trying to understand how much medicine to give somebody or like how fast that apple is falling from the tree, all the sort of physical phenomenon we're interested in, but for understanding very spiritual aspects, the sort of uh, numerical <clears throat> mysticism that numbers were the language of creation and the language of God. And I feel like we're coming full circle to that as we get into quantum theory and all of that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's exciting. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Okay. So, you remember how I was talking about the archai, that all of these yeah. different Greek philosophers were searching for an arche or multiple different elements, you know, what we, what we would now think of as elements. And you, you could, with some sort of reservations, you could say that in classical physics, what people end up thinking is that, the, is that atoms are archai, right? That's kind right. of what we talk about. The Pythagoreans think that numbers are archai. They right. think that they are, they serve the same role that we think atoms serve. So they are the basic rudiments of existence. And as you say, they are immaterial and therefore in some deep sense, spiritual. They have a kind of consonance and a harmony. And this is why the Pythagoreans are also very into music and why a lot of ancient Greek music theory comes from the Pythagorean, the disciples of Pythagoras is because Pythagoras, at least anecdotally, is supposed to have been the guy that figured out that harmonies are numerical, that they relate to ratios in, in wavelengths or in at least in lengths of the kind of generating instrument. And so they start to think, well, beauty also is kind of a, a function of numerical consonants and symmetry. And maybe that's true also of, of the human face, right? That it has certain proportions and all sorts of things that we would now at least entertain as, as plausible ideas. And as mm -hmm. you're saying, the notion that, that math kind of gets under the skin of reality in some fundamental way is is very big now. 
And that's not an accident because you know who are also big Pythagoreans or kind of neo-Pythagoreans are a lot of the mathematicians and philosophers of the Italian Renaissance, among whom none other than our boy Copernicus spends a lot of time studying. So Copernicus, right, born in, in Poland, but makes his way ultimately to Italy to complete his education. And there he meets people like Marsilio Ficino, who are saying Things like through the Pythagoreans, we learn that at the heart of the universe is not earth, but fire, right? That there's this flame in the center of the universe. And this is going to be Copernicus' explicit justification for the theological suitability of heliocentrism. So he's making all these mathematical and observational arguments for why the sun must be at the center of the solar system. But he's also referring back to these Pythagorean arguments that say, and also it's okay for God to be represented in some way in this central fire rather than for humanity and the earth to be at the center of the universe. And that's because Pythagoreanism is, is in vogue. He can sort of like reach into that as a, as a dimension of Renaissance humanism. And I think that the worship of numbers or the belief in numbers as kind of a core element of reality, which is also a big thing for Galileo, who says the universe is written in triangles and circles and geometric figures, persists then into the modern scientific era. Bertrand Russell says mathematics has a beauty that is high, cold, and austere, better than any sculpture or whatever else. You know, this, this notion that numbers are kind of more true or real than anything else. You know, whether we want to endorse it or not, I think we get it right from the Pythagoreans and it's still around for sure. It's so interesting how these ancient ideas that feel like they were so long ago and oftentimes, I mean, Elise and I talk about this all the time about how people look at things that happened in the past, look at ideas that occurred in the past, and just want to dismiss it because it happened in the past. Mm. And yet now it is just becoming clearer and clearer that it is so incredibly relevant and important for us if we're going to continue down this path to make newer and better discoveries. Because Mm -hmm. how else can we learn if we don't learn from the people who came before us? Right. Well, this is where I think we do start to open the, like, scary lid on this question of, like, to what extent are we still kind of doing magic, right? right? Um, and, And this is, so... People like Galileo and Descartes as well, sort of subsequently, have this, as we just mentioned, kind of Pythagorean faith in numbers. And specifically what they think is that numbers are like rational in this way that the spirits and the angels are not. And that by accessing the truths expressed in mathematical arrangements and numbers, you're kind of clearing away a lot of fallacies and fantasies that kind of clouded the vision of the old astrologers and and whatever. And so by getting at alchemy that works, by getting at astrology that works, by getting at magic that works, you're actually getting at something fundamentally different. And that is to say more rational and, and less spiritual than what the people in the ye olden times were doing. And one of the things that I think has recently started to make itself apparent is like, I'm not so sure that that was true. Um, The other way of looking at this is the way that Francis Bacon looks at it, actually, when he says, in my method and in my attempt to kind of refine 
science down to this mode, perfect mode of analysis. I am actually achieving honorable magic, pure magic. And sometimes when people talk about, you know, the way that science works, when they refer to like the spirits or the laws of nature that we have to kind of expiate or, or worship, the more we assume about our science that it is purely material, that it has no kind of spiritual element in it, the more our science starts to look like occultism and magic and starts to kind of present. And, and so one of the things that has been kind of obsessing me lately is that religion isn't actually the thing, like your, your choice isn't between non-spiritual atheism and spiritual religion. Your choice is between self-aware worship and worship that goes by all these other different names. Um, And this is one of the early accusations against people like Newton, who was very sensitive to and aware of this problem, that by talking about things like gravity and, and acting as if you have thereby kind of eliminated the mystery in this action at a distance or whatever else seems to be going on, right? Um, You're just performing a kind of linguistic trick. And Newton wasn't the first person to come under this accusation. I mean, when when Jean Buridan and some of these like medieval uh, academicians come up with the idea of impetus, which eventually then becomes momentum, people like William of Ockham are sitting around saying, well, hold on, like you've called it by this Latin name so that it doesn't sound like an angel or a fairy or a spirit. But like, how is it any different? What is it? Like, it's not a material thing and the more you i think wake up to this the more you realize that like science even science that fancies itself material isn't actually fully material and that's before you even get into quantum physics which is expressly not material uh, or at least expressly like information based and does kind of have this pythagorean structure and so really your options are like fess up to the spiritual, the magical, the mysterious dimension of your science, or let it control you. And not for nothing, but I kind of think that's what the Bible is talking about when it says that those who worship idols will become like them, that either you Mm. worship a God that is self-aware or you worship gods that actually don't have any real consciousness and you yourself lose your self-awareness and your consciousness and you just start to become like a kind of mechanical uh, worshiper of, of false gods. Uh, that's like, we really did open the can of worms, but I guess that's why we're, right. we're here. That's right? why, why we're, we're here, here talking yeah. about this. That's okay. what we're doing. Okay. <laughs> There's so much to unpack there. So I'm going to start with gravity because mm. that that's where my obsession is because mm. we don't even now, even like 300, 400 years after Newton, we still don't know what the heck gravity is. We know it's this force that occurs between two massive bodies, but like what the heck is it? Mm. Mm. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> right. And so um, that is still like a type of magic. Even in classical mechanics, we get Newton's three laws of motion, the laws of inertia, force equals mass times acceleration. Every action has an equal and opposite reaction. But these are all things just describing phenomena. Yes. It's not actually telling me what the thing is concretely deep and underneath. It's just a way to describe what's happening. Yes, and Newton do be talking about this all the time. Right. Like, to give him his due, you know, he's constantly saying this. And the problem is, of course, that people who are not Newton are constantly taking Newton's laws and being like, now we have looked under the hood of reality. Like, Pierre-Simon Laplace is like a big culprit here, you know, and all these sort of French interpreters right. of Newton. 
And you start to get these descriptions of what Newton did or what Bacon did as if, like, Newton is a new god, right? Alexander right. Pope uh. says, nature and nature's laws lay hid in night. God said, let Newton be, and all was light. And, and that's sort of what happens after Newton. But Newton, in his exchanges with Leibniz and, and elsewhere, is super aware of everything that you're saying. And, you know, Einstein, a, a major feature of Einstein's whole revolution, I think, is an attempt to kind of resolve not only this problem, but a bunch of other problems that follow on in electrodynamics once you admit gravity and you think of the world as this like empty box of space with objects moving through it that weirdly exert attraction on it. That's a good mental model. You know, like all good mental models, it has its deficiencies. But if you take that as reality, then suddenly it's like, okay, but what about light? How does it move? And what's the ether? And also, wait, by the way, it seems (laughs) as if the interrelation of magnetism and electricity is the same thing as light, which causes all sorts of other problems. And like now you end up with these two totally accessible, true and accurate sets of predictions about two phenomena in the world that can't possibly exist together at the same time. And so then Einstein has to basically take the whole thing down to the studs. And like, you tell me whether you think that's a successful endeavor. I don't think it resolves any of the fundamental problems we're talking about. It's just a new way of looking at these same phenomena, essentially. It is a new way of looking at it because people had taken what Newton said as like, law it's like this is all there is i think lord kelvin famously said there's nothing new to discover in physics now all that remains is more and more precise measurements and it's so funny because he was so dead wrong Hmm. yeah yeah (laughs) because not long after we do get uh the quantum revolution so you were talking about light and so now i we have to talk about the double slit experiment of course Mm mm-hmm well, it no, would not actually. be complete. No conversation between us would be complete without a discussion of the double slit. It Sorry. would not. <laughs> so, for those of you who have never heard of the double slit experiment, um, th- let's think about light as being a particle for a second. So, if I have this wall and it has two slits in it, if it's a particle, it will go through the two openings and create a pattern on the screen as you would expect here, right? If it's acting as a particle, it will roll and bounce off and make a very standard pattern. Everybody feel okay about that? Yes. I feel great about it. I, mean, I, feel, <laughs> I also feel I also feel deeply unsettled by it. But also but deeply I also unsettled. Feel. Okay, but let's say let's say it was like a wave pattern and we were thinking about it like ripples of water. Like I uh, set this screen up in a pool of water and I dropped a pebble and the pebble was sending out uh, these waves and the waves would pass through and create this interference pattern. So you see every place that the wave intersects is where it's going to uh, double up and cancel out. And so you get this pattern you see on the screen here. So at the time when this experiment was first being performed by Thomas Young, um, he th- was expecting to see the particles on the wall, right? Because at that point, light had been described as a particle. And so he shoots a beam of photons through and gets the wave interference pattern. Ah! <laughs> No. What no. is happening? <laughs> what are happened? Yes, exactly. Yes. And then, of course, later, the same experiment is performed with electrons um, by George uh, Paget Thomas and Alexander Reed. And this was done 
just, it's crazy because not only is light behaving both as a particle and as a wave, so is matter. Because remember, electrons are one of the simplest parts of matter. So this just like broke everybody's brains. (laughs) (laughs) This is insane. (laughs) This is galaxy brain. My Chad cat briefly made an appearance just because he he loves the double slit experiment. So my cat did come over. Very scientific cat. Big fan. Um, Love Chad Cat. Yes. Uh, but, okay, right. So, um, well, I, I, I don't want to cut you off. Is there, is there more that you are about to say? Oh, yeah. I, was, scenario? I think right. the only okay. thing I meant to mention is they, they put a detector before the screen. So, before um, they passed through and hit the screen and it was being observed, it was being observed as a particle. But when it was not being observed, it was behaving as a wave. Square the circle. Square, square the yes. circle. It yes. don't. It don't square. Yeah, right. Make it make sense. I mean, well, so Einstein helps to create the mathematics that right. can explain this, right? I mean, he's, one of his four big breakout papers in 1905 is about the photoelectric effect, which kind of enables us to maybe think about light as a particle in, under certain conditions. But it's a massless particle, which in itself is a contradiction in terms, if you're thinking, you know, in in Newtonian mechanics. And all of this is sort of an effort to, like, grapple with the fact that light behaves in these ways that don't answer to any of the categories that are set up kind of fundamentally in Newtonian physics, right? Like, any physics, you sort of have to begin, or any system of logic at all, you have to begin with some terms that describe, like, entities in your world picture and the thing that light is just doesn't answer to any of those terms and as you i think very rightly pointed out people had taken newton's terms as an exhaustive description of all the things that there are right and those like if if something exists it's it's one of these things it's a particle it's a uh, mass, right? It's, it's, it, it's one of these sort of objects that we imagine in, in Newtonian physics. Never, in, never would I want to attribute to Newton that view, but that is the view that in some sense we still live with, that like unless it can be described in these like ob- so-called objective terms, then it's not a thing. And what, what light and subsequently then everything else does is it reacquaints us with the fact that actually all terms, all language, all thought, is not some sort of outside-of-us, mind-independent, objective entity in the world, but a bucket that we have in our minds for receiving the light of the outside world. So it's, it's much more like, and this is something that Immanuel Kant sort of is, is really big on, um, it's, it's much more like the world out there is kind of unknowable in its essence without our intervention. So like if you ask the question, what does the world look like when nobody is there to see it? Kant and and subsequently Niels Bohr and a bunch of the Copenhagen theorists who are sort of influenced by Kant are all really emphatic that there's like no answer to that question because even by forming the words to make an answer, you're already using one of these buckets, right? All of the language that we use and indeed all of the thought that gives rise to our language is, is chunked up into these buckets. And what's happening in quantum physics I think, I mean, this is a very like, you know, sort of arrogant thing to say, like quantum physics is about, but I think that like quantum physics is about people realizing that 
these buckets are inside of us. And that doesn't mean they're not real. It doesn't mean that they don't get us to truth. It just means that our idea that we have that the buckets are outside of us and we make no contribution whatsoever mm-hmm. to the world is a false idea that actually the world as we know it and can speak about it comes into being out of a relationship between mind and matter, which is not for nothing, kind of exactly the world that is described in Genesis when you've got this one mind that speaks these various things into being. It even Genesis even contains a moment of pre-observational superposition, I think, when it's talking about the, the earth being formless and void and God's spirit brooding over the water. I mean, th- th- now I'm really being speculative, but just to say that like the, the relational spiritual view of the world is suddenly kind of coming back in the quantum revolution and it has to do with as you say like the these weird things that that are happening to light which einstein and bohr like stay up into the wee hours of the morning arguing over and schrodinger too just trying to come up with some thought experiment that will rescue newtonian categories or any sort of mathematical objectivist categories for as as like mind independent objects and I, I suspect that like what they're grappling with and what we're grappling with is the fact that actually those categories were always a kind of picture that we were layering onto reality. And we're never going to not layer a picture onto reality as part of our role in the world as co-creators with, with God, I, I believe. But that those categories aren't independent of us and we can't write ourselves out of the equation, which was expressly the project of the scientific revolution was to get human intervention out of the way. And what that ends you up with is a, is a soulless universe, which Newton was worried about and said, I'm, I'm worried that if you can describe the universe without any kind of mind involved, you're going to get just a machine and that's going to be a, a, a step down the primrose path to atheism. And sure enough, when we think about the world as a machine that can operate without any kind of cognitive intervention, we begin, as, as Barclay also predicted, to lose sight of the necessity of God. But when we're reacquainted with the, the nature of matter as a kind of interrelationship between us and the outside world, then it starts to make more sense to think about the world itself and the cosmos itself as just that kind of relationship between mind and matter. That's, you know, take, take it or leave it. That's sort of my two cents about this stuff. I love it. Um, because that is really what they were trying to get at. I mean, Einstein famously said, God doesn't play dice. And so he really didn't like all of the things that quantum mechanics had to say at the beginning. And it was only after uh, him and his friends uh, went through the EPR paradox, and which we talked about on an episode that we did ab- basically all about quantum mechanics. If you guys missed that, that was our... Uh, is the universe locally real episode. Make sure you guys check that out um, because that was a super fun discussion. And I don't want to sit here and reteach everybody all of quantum mechanics. I'm sure you guys don't want to sit here and hear it. I'm sure you Uh, all remember. Yeah, of course. You remember (laughs) we talked about quantum numbers. We talked about the Schrodinger's cat experiment. That's why I have the Schrodinger's cat shirt. I mean, anyway, enough self-promotion. But (laughs) Available now. Right. Participation.com. Yes. Great. Got to drop the URL. What's the link? Where do they go? Come on, Jess. No, just kidding. (laughs) As I sit here. Come on, Jess. Do more. Yeah. Yeah. Good friend. You say something today. 
<laughs> I'm learning. I'm learning with everybody. So I think anybody who's listened to us for more than five minutes knows that this is not my forte. So I am. Um, I, it's not. Well, I mean, it's very much not mine. Either, but you put I it say. so eloquently and I agree with what you were saying. I just and I love how you said it, because, again, it's so eloquently put and it's so well thought out. And so for anybody who's listening, who's kind of kind of more in my camp, maybe who's like, uh, yeah, yeah, I get it. Right. Um, <laughs> I appreciate so much that you both can come here and talk about these things, which are um, so intimidating for people who aren't involved in it as much as you two are. So to be able to sit here and listen and just to grasp it and be like, oh, yes, I've always, because I was thinking as you were speaking, these are the things I've been thinking. <laughs> I just mm. have not been able to put them into words. So again, I just appreciate that. So wow. if well, I'm, I'm quiet. I, no, I'm very gratified by that. And I should say in return, just since we're here in the mutual admiration society, that like, because this is in no, I am very much an interloper in this domain. Like I have really relied, especially lately on Jess and yeah. on you guys and on your show for like, you know, sort of bouncing ideas off of and, and you know, reading what she's written lately and, yes. and all of that. Um, and I just think like, and to pull the camera back a little bit for a second, one of the reasons why, you know, it's, it, for me, it's kind of scary to like talk about science or to venture sure. into science. It wasn't my strong suit. And it's like an area where people are very protective of like expertise. And I never want to be like projecting a kind of expertise about mathematics that I don't have or whatever. But as Jess was rightly saying at the beginning here, like science has kind of lost its way. And I think there's yes. a sense in which theology has also lost its way yes. by diverging from each other. You know, like when I was in grad school, I read this book by some priest that had nothing to do with any of this, but he mentioned in passing that the, the domain of natural theology, which is to say the domain of reading God's messages into creation, has largely fallen to scientists because priests have lost the nerve. Yeah. Mm. And priests don't feel like they can speak into these issues in the same way that like book bros like myself don't think they can speak into these issues, right? People that have studied classics or whatever, they think this is all too complicated to, to talk about. And, and the result is that science as a territory just gets left right. to atheists who don't even recognize the theological implications of what they're saying or are drawing from what they're saying these, these bonkers implications. Um, and so like I, in our, in our small way, I feel like we're having an important conversation here because we are trying to like bring these two fields back into conversation with one another, which they, they desperately, desperately need to yes. be. Um, I have one other thing to say about quantum yeah. mechanics, but, but yes. I, okay. Um, so something that people don't always, I think, recognize, even in like, when you hear the sort of story about the double slit and how Einstein and like, even when people get kind of deep into this, there, there's an, an aspect of it that's really important that, that kind of gets lost. But it's really beautifully articulated in a, a book by Thomas Kuhn called uh, Black Body Radiation and the Origins of Quantum Theory or the, the Origins of the Quantum Discontinuity in Black Body Radiation or something like that. It's a, oh, you it's can't a, remember? I'm sorry. <laughs> Black Body Radiation is wild. I know I learned about it when I took physical chemistry, but I don't think yes. I understood any of it. <laughs> It's so hard. And it's one yeah. of the experiments that is often kind of described in popular treatments of 
quantum mechanics as like your way in. And I, I think that's probably a mistake because historically, <laughs> yeah, I mean, like as a matter of history, that is where Planck was working when he right. discovered the quantum discontinuity. So it's really easy for nerds to be like, and so let's talk about black body, but it's actually really confusing and complicated. And like this book is unfortunately highly technical. Like Kuhn was capable of writing in a very accessible way, but this one contains like a lot of mathematics and whatever, but he is demonstrating something really important, which is that Planck was led to discover the quantum nature of reality, which is to say the fact that there are certain values beneath which you can't go, that like you can't get a dimension smaller than the Planck length and you can't get a time smaller than Planck time and all this stuff. He was led to that by earlier work that wasn't actually directly applicable, but was about statistical mechanics. And it was, it was by this guy, Ludwig Boltzmann, who was looking at thermodynamics and this problem in thermo, the second law of thermodynamics that you can't like go backwards from chaos that when, when atoms start to spread out in a gas or whatever, they get more complicated, but you can't like work your way back from can't put the toothpaste back in the tube. Exactly. <laughs> you can't unstir the porridge, like whatever metaphor you want to use, like information is lossy. Like you, you, you can't actually take a snapshot of a bunch of particles and say like, and I know therefore where they started. Um, it, and Boltzmann's explanation for this was that actually motion took place in these little statistical units. So it wasn't that like any, at any given moment, if you take a snapshot, you know exactly what's going to happen. It's just that of all the many different possibilities, one is way more likely. And there's like way more times that you play the tape forward where that thing happens than any other thing. Um, and so using that kind of mechanism, he was able to, should sort of explain or understand the second law of thermodynamics. That is the mechanism or the math that Planck has to use to describe things like black body radiation or ultimately, you know, wave particle duality and photons, because it turns out that we don't live in a machine, right? Like that, this is the right. fundamental thing about quantum that people don't necessarily always understand is that like, it's a way of acknowledging that actually we're not locked into this kind of rigid cause and effect, but there's something more indeterminate and even you might say free about the way that the universe operates and that to me is like one of the coolest things about it that we kind of miss yeah it's it's such an interesting way of looking at the world and not just to like talk about what you were saying earlier it always frustrates it frustrates me makes me sad that there is this separation between science and theology or just people who are interested in science and feel like there's no way to come and grapple with it because it has these hugely important in underpinnings that we've been talking about today. Um, and it's, we need to find a way to get back to that place where we can have these open conversations. And I think that is the, one of the coolest things that we are doing right now that I'm very excited about your new book, We'll hopefully be doing um, yeah. so just like all kinds of cool things. But then we get to all of the things that are happening right now in science, because not only are the atheists taking over, they're trying to use it as a way to basically bash us over the head with their own morality. Like they are using quantum mechanics to get the many worlds interpretation. And now we've got all of these multi dimensions and they're, tr they're continually trying to explain away God with these numbers and with this science. 
And it's extremely frustrating. And bullying anybody who would suggest yep. otherwise. Too. Yeah. Um. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, this is an interesting dynamic, to say the least. And, you know, one of the things that got me into all of this was studying the many worlds interpretation, yeah. which just doesn't make any sense. And, and <laughs> because of, like, who I am, the way that I got into it was, like, I was watching all these Marvel movies. This is a true story. Like, this is right. sort of, <laughs> this is right. why I'm right, here. Right, bro. Yeah. Is, like, I was watching all these Marvel movies, and I was like, they're all about this totally incoherent idea, which is yes. incoherent as a, as a plot device, like even yep. leaving aside its underlying kind of physical assumptions, right? it actually explodes the possibility of plot. And, and that's sort of fascinating to me. Like why would it be that we've gotten so into this thing, this plot device that is like the anti-plot and the anti-logic and whatever. And so I did this whole, I wrote this whole essay about the multiverse in Marvel that led me into the multiverse in, in history. And it turns out, you know, I mean, there's various different ways of working out multiverse proposals, one of which is kind of like st string theoretical and has to do with these, these various different bubble universes. But I think the one that people are really thinking about when they talk about, I mean, that's when you mentioned many worlds interpretation, which is the name of this very specific one that, that originates with this like frustrated PhD student, Hugh Everett. The third, who the third, um, of course, he's a third. He's a third. I mean, it's always the spare, right? Enough. Um, <laughs> yeah. So he's Hugh Everett, number three. This time it's personal, and he <laughs> like basically wants to take Schrodinger's cat and be like, right. "Is the cat alive or dead?" Yes, which was a possibility right. that Schrodinger himself had entertained as a way out of quantum weirdness, but which causes, I, that just like, makes it weirder. Way bigger problems. Yes, exactly. Right, and yes. doesn't answer the problem. Doesn't answer the question that it's designed right. to answer and all this stuff. But I think like, yeah, you're right. They're, they're, they are fleeing from God because there are many sort of theological, as Einstein himself knew when confronted with Big Bang Theory, when Georges Lemaitre came to him and said like, I've used your physics to describe the beginning of the universe. He was horrified. Einstein was horrified. because He was like, well, then if the universe has a beginning, then there's something on the other end of it that's not the universe. And what right. might that be? Like, you know, um, but there's all these implications that people are trying to work their way out of, which just seems to me like question begging, right? Like it's like you've already decided the answer and now you're just trying to figure out some way to defend your preferred answer, yes. which is like, again, the opposite of science. But to your point about, you know, atheists taking over or defending, I think, th I think there's like it takes two to tango here a little bit yeah. because it is true that many atheists are angrily kind of uh, slandering anybody that does try to give a theistic interpretation of science. It's also true that Christians or religious believers are so like gun shy, like they, they're, they're sort of like abused spouses or something to use a sort of incendiary yeah. metaphor, right? We're, we, we're like these people that have been, that are in an abusive relationship with scientists who have told us like you're stupid and wrong and, and primitive yeah, and backward. for years, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so now we start to talk about this stuff and we feel like science, we feel like if we acknowledge or examine scientific truth or allow that science can reveal certain things that no other source of truth can, then we're going to have to give up our faith or that like our faith is going to be threatened by what we discover if we go out there. And like to that, I just am constantly saying, if God is the God of truth, then 
then any legitimate means of discovering truth is going to be a means of discovering God in the end. And you just have to believe that or you don't really believe. Like, that's sort of what faith yes. is. Yes. Accurate. That goes all the way back <laughs> to the beginning. Like, just to bring the show full circle, that is the original reason people pursued science, right? It was to mm. discover and learn more about this place that God gave us to be able to live in it, to be able to understand all of the beautiful things he gave us. And the fact that we have, as Christians, have just kind of ceded the ground to these atheists who basically get to play with creation and say whatever they want about it, it's just mm. really not fair. Um, That's because, so well put, yeah. Because it is just, I don't know. We, we talked way back in our first episode about how creation just really cries out God's beauty. I mean, we are literally held together by these tiny proteins that he made exactly the right way in exactly the right order so we don't fall apart at the seams. All of the forces hold the planets in just the right way so they don't come flying apart or crashing into each other. To look at all of that and not see God in it is to stare at it blindly and to, to like you were saying earlier, kind of be like a weird cult. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, well, trust I mean, the science. Augustine says that when he studied natural philosophy, he went and asked the stones, are you God? And they said, we are not God, look higher. And so he went and asked the heavens, are you God? And they said, we are not your God, look higher. And, and I think like, a lot of what we're discovering now in physics is just that. It's just the world, the, the very stone foundations of existence saying to us, we are not your God, look higher. In order to understand what we are, you have to believe that there is something above us, not physically above us in terms right. of like, you know, on the y-axis, but right. fundamentally and spiritually above us in, in, in some deep way. And... Look, I mean, the word cosmos means order. That's mm -hmm. the Greek word cosmeo means to put something into order. And in order to do science at all, whether you admit it or not, you have to start from the implicit premise that there is order in the universe, which is actually an article of faith. Because if you think about it, the way the world typically looks to us, it, it's not apparent or obvious that there is definitely order in it. It's actually quite remarkable to step out and study the world on the assumption that if you look deep enough below the surface, you're going to find currents and trends that are rational and that make sense. And there's no reason to think that's going to work unless you believe that this was all set in place, as you articulately said, Jess, a little bit earlier, unless you think that there was like care and intention and design. So science, as just as an endeavor is fundamentally fideistic, is, is fundamentally religious in, in some way. Yes. It, but it's so subcutaneous, it's so deep how religious it is that a lot of people that do it don't recognize it. And and that's not that worked for a while, but that's not gonna wash. Like if we I think if we right. want to proceed theologically or scientifically, we're gonna have to remember that this is fundamentally a created universe and that studying it implies that it was created to begin with. And I think that's part of why the atheists are guarding science so religiously, because it has 
in effect, become their religion. They've filled the God-shaped hole in their heart with all of the numbers and all of the calculations and all of these different things to try and replace God, worshiping the created thing instead of the creator, which, again, just to bring it full circle, makes it their form of magic. Hmm. Yeah, no question. It it, it certainly is. I mean, it is magic that works. This is Arthur C. Clarke says, like, you know, significantly advanced technology is indistinguishable mm-hmm. from magic. And this is why. This is right. this is why that's true. Um, so it has a real kind of persuasive power. And if it is made into a god, then you can basically delude yourself into believing that you are, you've, you've like grabbed hold of the keys to the car in, in some way. But as is becoming very apparent from the way people are currently behaving, like, actually when you think you are getting hold of that power, you're really submitting yourself to whatever forces you think rule the world. And unless you think there's some other will, design, and intention that rules those forces and that also created you, you are not going to actually like the consequences of submitting yourself to anything other than that will. Um, And I think like not for nothing but people do be out here like building sculptures of 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 like the embodiment of abortion or uh, (laughs) like making videos about how octavia spencer is mother earth and she's gonna kill you and it's like i think they think they're speaking in in metaphors i think they think it's it's kind of an ironic joke yes but i'm not so sure that it is like i'm not so sure that that's not just a direct description of what the most direct possible articulation of what people who are highly technically adept, but spiritually blind. Yes. That's basically what you end up with. Absolutely. The, you have these people mockingly, jokingly, whatever. And it's like you have the, – the scary part is you have no idea what you're worshiping. You have no idea what you're really delving into. You think it's a joke. You think this these things are kind of, oh, ha, ha. This is so much more real, so much more um, – scary <laughs> for, yeah. for you then uh then you have any idea and that's really sad and um but also where we're at i think in our world today that's yeah i mean uh, just this morning i was doing an episode of young heretics and i came across this passage in augustine when he's arguing against the manichaeans and they are saying like oh don't worry we don't really worship the sun it's sort of a <laughs> secret back it's like an ironic yeah. you know, way that we have of describing what we actually believe. And Augustine is like, you're worse than the pagans because the pagans at least know what they're up to yes. and they admit that they worship the sun and therefore they worship something that does exist, you know, like the Bible. And then Augustine goes on to make this point that we've been stressing throughout this episode that like the, the pagans don't worship things that don't exist. And the Bible doesn't say don't worship these other things because they're not real. It says don't worship them because they are real. And therefore yes. worshiping them is relating to them in the wrong way. Like, and he has this beautiful line, which kind of sums up so much of what we've all, all been saying, which is it's not that you shouldn't worship a tree because trees don't exist. It's that you shouldn't worship it because that's not the right mode of worship and the correct mode of worship with respect to a tree is to water it which is just like a beautiful 
right. thing to say. Like yes. that's how creation actually works is everything is our fellow creature. And so cultivating and loving it in its appropriate mode is a form of worship once you understand that, that worship ultimately belongs to God. Yes. You're worshiping the creator and you're showing your, um, your gratitude, your respect, your, your um, you know, we are sent here to be caretakers of this earth, for example, talking about trees and things like that. So it's just another form of worshiping God, the creator. But when you don't understand that or when you don't really comprehend what all of this is, again, just a really scary road for people to go down, mm. especially when they dismiss any form of spirituality in anything. I think that's, like you had said, it's even even worse. I don't know. Yeah. The there's that line in the Psalms, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Right. And I read this for a long time as like atheists are dumb, like as a kind of dig at <laughs> atheists as fools. Right. And now I don't think that's what it is at all. Cause I actually don't think that atheists are any more sort of stupid than anybody else. Right. But I think those who tell themselves they have no God are, are kidding themselves and therefore become fools, right? And that's yes. sort of what we're coming up against again and yes. again is like people who think they are atheists who are actually the most religious people alive. <laughs> and yes. that's why, for example, the new atheism of like Dawkins and Sam Harris has completely collapsed and been replaced with this passionate theology of, of wokeness is because right. like, you can't really do atheism. Like it doesn't actually exist. There's only self-aware religion and religion that doesn't recognize itself as such. And then it starts infecting uh, like it, we've already talked about science because now they're trying to fill all of the things that they can't explain with dark matter, which we can't see. We can't touch. We can't measure, but it's there guys. I'm telling you it's there. <laughs> I know. I find that really interesting. I, I, I'm like a total agnostic about dark matter. Like, I don't really understand. I guess, I guess it's, as you say, it's a way of sort of filling. It's like a, a matter of the gaps. You know, you used to have yep. God of the gaps where there wasn't, you know, <laughs> no, we got you, matter of this, the gaps. this or that couldn't be explained. Yep. So that must be where God intervenes. Now it's like, there's all sorts of things that can't be explained materially. So there must just be some other matter that, that does that, I guess. Right. It's like, I'm not going to say God holds it all together uh, supernaturally. I'm just going to say this extra energy comes from dark matter. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> Insert anything but God yeah. here. Okay. Yeah. But that right. just becomes their own God, right? Yes. Well, right. It does become a kind of God by another name. And that's sort of what we were talking about earlier with like, right. what is momentum? What is gravity? It's like yeah. you apply all of these technical clinical terms to things so that then it sounds like you have right. explained them and you actually haven't really you're just using new words and like something that we don't understand i think is that magic didn't look like magic paganism didn't look like paganism to the people that practiced it like the one of the major things the bible does that we don't give it enough credit for is it shows you pagan worship and idol worship from the outside in right. you know from the inside out pagan pagan idol worship looks very rational and real and it's only from the outside in that you can see this is just a block of wood or it's just a sculpture or whatever and i think like we flatter ourselves that our magic our you know pagan idols are 
perfectly rational and actually do all the things that we want them to do because we don't realize that that's also what it looked like to the worshipers of stone idols of the past. Like we, we, part of this is from a, an inadequate attention to history. It, we, we don't realize that like everybody always thinks they've got it all figured out. Like the, there's always this sort of um, from the inside out, it always looks like everything is, is hanging together perfectly. It's only once you take a step back, which is sort of what scripture claims to let you do. That's sort of one of the major claims of scripture is like, we're giving you the outside in picture of the world, which is the God's eye view that nothing else can, can give you. And I think that's like, uh, well, to say the least, we, we sort of don't understand our need for that very deeply. I think you, I think it's hard to want to accept that too, a little bit with your ego as well. Like just to, we don't want to, we kind of can't, we kind of don't want to all at the same time. Um, oh, I did it again. I did this last time too. Had something, lost it. Uh, I do that all the time. It's gone. Oh, well. It'll come back later when I'm like sleeping and then I'll, you know. And then you'll anyway. call me at two o'clock in the morning and be like, I remembered the thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That would have been so brilliant. It would have made the show. And then, no. Nope. <laughs> they told that <laughs> no, the this would have been the perfect show, the, like, guys. Staircase spirit. When you turn back on the staircase, you're like, oh, I remember. Damn it. Yes, exactly. Yes. But, right. Oh, well. That tells oh, you no. that we don't live in the many worlds interpretation because then the wave function would have collapsed to the most perfect thing at that moment, right? <laughs> Good point. <laughs> Well, well, well played. Yeah. I, I like to joke that every episode of Young Heretics is recorded in a state of quantum superposition, according to the many worlds interpretation, so that whenever you hear something that sounds like it was directly aimed at you, it actually was. You are getting the collapse of the wave function that most directly pertains to your situation. It's a kind of That's neat. how I listen to every episode. I know it's just like a conversation between us. It's fine. Right. <laughs> it's, it's the go. world's greatest parasocial relationship. Exactly. I love it. Um, well, this has been amazing. Uh, yeah. We're, I think it's a good time for us to go hang out with our friends over on Rumble. I think we've ignored memes. them long enough. Yeah. They're probably like banging on the glass like Spencer was earlier. <laughs> <laughs> Let us in. Yes. Yes. Let's so you have time. Okay. Perfect. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm going to just, while we do that, I'm going to try to turn your volume up because for some reason you got super quiet all of a sudden. I think uh -oh. it's on my end because you were working fine before, but. Hang on. Okay. While he fixes that, we're going to head on over. At least you want to tell everybody what you're talking about next week? Yeah. Uh, it's still a work in progress, but I think what we are going to be talking about on Friday is uh, the Magi and the star that led them to Jesus and also Herod and kind of how all those came into play to bring us the Christmas story and just things that we've never really, things that don't get talked about often with all of them. So it's going to be a mishmash of all these things. It's going to come together beautifully. It's on Friday. Definitely not at the last minute, but de it's already ready. It's, I can tell. Psh, I got this. No, it'll be a fun episode. And it'll be nice and Christmassy too, but more than what we normally hear about the Christmas story. So. I love it. I'm excited for it. So stay tuned if you're on Rumble. If you're audio listeners, what are you guys doing? You should come subscribe to us over on Rumble. Hang out with us on Discord. Look at the memes. Enjoy the one-on-one -on -one chat. And we will see you guys over there. See you in a minute.